Off and running on a Wednesday edition of Midday on the Rural Radio Network. And welcome to it. I'm Dirk Christensen. As we bring you news, information, sports, weather, just about everything you can find that you need to know about rolled up into a tidy little ball here on the Midday program. And we start off with the... Farm Broadcaster of the Year. <laughs> and, you know, I've been listening to you ever since, you know, you've been on here pretty intently for the last week or so. Yes. I see why you got that. Why, thank you. I really do. Yep, you are you are setting the bar here, young lady. Well, I'm trying. Yeah. But when i got to sit next to these guys, the bar is high. Yeah, well, that's true. And the bar is also wet. It is. <laughs> it is that. Susan Littlefield with our headlines. Well, good, uh, almost good afternoon. Good morning. We are looking at coming up at 1219, talking a little bit of weed and science as a recent tour was hosted involving the EPA officials touring some western Kansas farms. Then at 1245, we'll be talking about agricultural history at the University of Nebraska Kearney. 117 to talk about everybody's least favorite pest in the soybean field. I'll be speaking with an agronomist at Syngenta about testing right now for soybean cyst nematodes. EPA's back in the news. They say they want to work with their partners in industry to the ones that they regulate. And the House Ag Committee has advanced some bills which will have a ripple down effect. Okay. Yeah. See, that's always that's a tease. I know. Ripple down. It has nothing to do with water either. Okay. Jason Jorgensen with a look at sports. Lady Huskers back in action tonight. Of course, they have been on the run. The trick now is how does this young team handle the success? And they have a tough match tonight at home. As Michigan State comes in, they are ranked in the top 15. That one starts at 7. We'll give you a preview on that one. Also, we'll talk some Husker football. We will hear from defensive coordinator Bob Diaco about Ben Stilley, the redshirt freshman defensive end who really broke through with a big game against Illinois. He actually ended up being named Big Ten Freshman of the Week for the way he played on last Friday night, and he certainly has a bright future in front of him. And we'll talk some baseball. Playoffs got started last night with the Yankees knocking off the Twins in the AL wild card. Uh-oh, there's a long face over here. <laughs> there is, but I still love my Twinkies, so we're good. And the NL wild card matchup tonight. It's been a long time in coming for the Rockies as Colorado takes on Arizona. These two teams... Had fabulous seasons, but weren't talked about much because they were in the same division with the Dodgers, who for most of the year were pretty close to unbeatable. It really seemed like everything yeah. else disappeared during that run, didn't it? It, it did, yeah. until the Dodgers kind of let off the uh, gas pedal and struggled in September. Yeah. You didn't hear much about those other two. Right. All right, we'll look forward to it. Thanks, and Bob Brogan has the business headlines. Stocks are slightly higher in midday trading on Wall Street. Consumer-focused companies and healthcare stocks were rising more than the rest of the market. U.S. Senators bewildered by Equifax contract with the IRS after the hack. How did that happen? They're looking into that. Uh, congressional hearings are taking place, and Equifax is in the middle of that. Also, uh, an interesting idea. Uh, there are thoughts, uh, some of these coming from President Donald Trump, uh, who is pushing to phase out the use of social security numbers as a form of identification. So how would we identify ourselves? Would we, would we be like, you know, Star Wars characters, R2-D2, or, you know, what <laughs> what would it be? Or would we have a computer chip in our finger? Yeah, and, chip me. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. You know, which yep. finger would they, you know, which finger would they use? Would they use this one? Yeah. Which? Look out. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Let's open that can of worms, shall we? It's all coming up for you today on Midday. 
Moving ahead on Midday Today with a look at ag weather with Paul Perkins brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer. Yeah, we've got uh, increasing cloud cover all across the area today. About the only area that's maybe seeing some sunshine is from O'Neill down to around the Norfolk area, northeast Nebraska. Otherwise, some showers and thunderstorms moving northeast through the region. They're gradually dissipating some of that activity, starting to move into south-central Nebraska from west of Alma down to around Lenora and Hill City in Kansas. The bigger area of rain over north-central northeast Kansas, a lot of it right along I-70 from about east of Russell on over to the Manhattan exit. Then some of that activity towards Sylvan Grove on up to Clay Center and the northeast corner of Kansas. That activity also lifting towards the northeast, but gradually uh, dissipating. So, once we get through this latest uh, deluge, I can't really call it a deluge, it's just a, a constant, persistent rainfall, we do dry out just a little bit, and then we're back to it for next week? Yeah, well, no, actually dry next week. Next, okay. Yeah, but this week, late That's this good. week on into the weekend, we are looking at some, uh, for the late in the week here, we are looking late at some wet conditions, but actually the long term looking dry. But we do have winds today switching towards the east thanks to some high pressure sliding in from South Dakota on into Iowa. That cloud cover on the increase today with some east winds and low pressure approaching from the west. Most areas today expected to remain dry after that rain continues to diminish over Kansas. Rain and thunderstorms become likely, though, tonight after midnight and remain likely all the way through Friday night. For tomorrow through Friday night, as some waves of low pressure track east across the plains. Those storms tomorrow not expected to be strong or severe, but we could see some strong or severe activity Friday. We'll see a little higher instability with the passage of a front. There could be some minor flooding if these storms do start to set up a little like earlier in the week. Temperatures tomorrow are going to be milder thanks to some south winds starting to kick in. Sunshine returns over the weekend as some low pressure exits. A cold front, though, could develop some thunderstorms for Sunday night and Monday. Not looking at a major system with this one. But some chances for thunderstorms Sunday night into Monday and some cooler air going to stick around for a few days in the early part of next week. Now, that long-term forecast expects those cooler than normal temperatures in Nebraska and Kansas for the early half of next week. Then temperatures expected to warm back to more seasonal levels late next week through October 17th. Now, chances look good that Nebraska and Kansas are headed towards a drier period, so maybe some harvest efforts getting into full gear. Below normal rainfall in the forecast for Nebraska and Kansas Monday through October 17th. AccuWeather released their winter forecast today, and that forecast expects La Nina to play a factor in our weather forecast. La Nina expected to fuel abundant snow across the Rockies, and some bitterly cold air to blast the Midwest, and that includes right here in Nebraska and Kansas. AccuWeather expecting a dry winter and some blast of cold Arctic air since we'll be getting some of that cold and drier air moving in from the north as opposed to some moisture from the south. Weather factors driving the market today include rain disrupting the harvest across the Midwest and a drier forecast in Brazil. A disturbance crossing the Intermountain West will interact with the slow-moving cold front and result in some rain across the nation's midsection over the next few days. Rain totals over a five-day period could reach about one to four inches from the southern Rockies and Plains on into the Great Lakes. That additional rain in the western Midwest will disrupt their harvests even more. The western Midwest is currently running about two weeks behind on the harvest schedule and is at the slowest pace in nearly 10 years. In the eastern Midwest, the harvest progress has been better since it's been drier. 
The Delta and Southeast Harvest will be interrupted by light to moderate rain over the weekend and early next week. Another surge of cold air will arrive across the northern plains and northwest by Sunday and quickly engulf much of the west and central U.S. A drier forecast in the northern plains will help out resuming their harvest efforts, but the cooler weather will keep that drying at a slow pace. The pattern in central Brazil going to be drier in the next five days. The drier pattern will allow better progress in soybean planting after some recent rain, but there are still concerns for continued dryness in the next 8 to 14 days in central Brazil. Well, it'll be nice to dry out. I think yeah. we're all looking forward to that and kind of shaking the mold off, whatever it is here. Exactly, especially <laughs> as we head after tomorrow through Friday night when those likely chances of rain. It's not going to rain all the time, but we're just going to look at periods of rain for a sustained period of time tomorrow through Friday night. All right, well. Well, we'll look forward to the weekend. Then uh-huh. your weather watch brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, or Ranky dealer when you need weather anytime. KRBN.com. Dewey Nelson with a market update on the Rural Radio Network. After we were drifting lower, we've come back and rebound in the uh, soybean trade. Wheat is still lower. Soybeans fractionally, or excuse me, corn fractionally lower, and trading maybe in a three cent range. December corn three forty nine, March three sixty one and three quarters, both down a half. December of next year three ninety four and a quarter, down one. November soybeans nine sixty and a quarter. January nine seventy one, both up five. Next November nine eighty and a half, up three and a quarter. December Chicago wheat four forty three and three quarters down four. March four sixty two down three and a half. December Kansas City four thirty eight. March four fifty five and a half. Both down three and three quarters. Minneapolis December six ten and a half down one and three quarters. March six twenty four down two. Over to livestock trade where we see a rebound in live cattle after the Fed Cattle Exchange online sale. Featured 800 selling at an average weighted price of 108. October live cattle 109.55 up 45. December 115.37 up 47. February 119.45 up 92. April 120.85 up 72. October feeder cattle 152.67 up 25. November 154.57 up 27. January 152.20 up 20. March 149.92 up 5. In the lean hog trade were mixed. October 60.12 up 25. December 61.90 down 17. February 67.50 up 15. The Dow Jones 30 industrial average rallying up 34 at 22,675. NASDAQ's up 5 at 6,537. And the S&P 500 up 4 at 2,536. When every season can make or break the health of your farm, performance becomes personal. Get the most out of every acre with the best-in-class seed for the best-in-field farmer. You'll feel confident with exclusive DeKalb Genetics. Unmatched in its commitment to your farm and your yield, DeKalb could make all the difference come harvest. A history of success, a future of performance. That's DeKalb. For more information, visit nebraska.decalb.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. In today's fast-paced world of agriculture, producers need accurate market information they can 
can trust. Our program, The Final Bell, gives you the chance to ask the experts your marketing questions. I'm Susan Littlefield with the Rural Radio Network. Join us for our Final Bell podcast each trading day as we dig deeper into the factors shaping the day's market activity. Tweet your questions to RRN Markets and catch the Final Bell podcast updating each weekday afternoon at ruralradio.com. You can also search Rural Radio on iTunes and tune in. It will work in partnership with the industries it regulates. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. The head of the Environmental Protection Agency says his staff will now work in close partnership with industries that they regulate. As Administrator Scott Pruitt says, he'll revive a Bush era program to maintain an open dialogue with American businesses. Pruitt says that the collaboration will boost the economy while delivering better environmental outcomes. The EPA's announcement includes statements from industry leaders cheering this initiative, including chemical manufacturers, pesticide makers, electric utilities, and oil and gas producers. If you grow soybeans, there's a chance you have soybean cyst nematodes. Travis Gustafson, agronomy service representative at Syngenta, says you have to get out and sample to get ahead of the problem. You know, a lot of people call cyst nematodes the silent yield robber and um, a lot of times the only time you can tell if there's a nematode population or a nematode pocket in your field is on the yield map at the end of the season. Sometimes you will get some yellowing of the leaves and some stunted growth if you have really high populations, but many times the only way you'll know is the yield monitor picture at the end of the season, which is kind of uh, frustrating in a way just because you, you don't know you have it until it hits you in the pocketbook at the end of the season. So get a, you got to get out there and sample and um, get ahead of the problem rather than wait till the end of the season to find out you have a problem. Gustafson said that testing before the ground freezes will give you a better count on soybean cyst nematodes in the field. Today, the House Ag Committee approved five bipartisan common sense measures that are designed to cut red tape and improve efficiency of forest and land management and diversify input of commodity standards. Following today's markup, Chairman Michael Conaway made the remark saying, Maintaining our federal forests can be hard enough without a bureaucratic red tape of Washington getting in the way. Two of the measures approved by the committee today take important steps to expedite forest management activities and help tap the ingenuity of the private sector to reduce the risk of wildfires. Each of these markups from land transfers a commodity standards boards of forest management making common sense improvements of our federal programs. The National Pork Producers Council is congratulating Stephen Sensky and Ted McKinney and their confirmations for key leadership positions within the USDA. Last night, the U.S. Senate confirmed Sensky and McKinney as the USDA's Deputy Secretary and Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, respectively. The confirmation of Stephen Sensky and Ted McKinney come at a critical time for U.S. agriculture. That's according to NPPC President Ken Mashoff. He says they bring strong agricultural leadership experience and a commitment to the expansion of international trade on which our industry depends. Sensky provides services to the CEO as the American Soybean Association, where he made market expansion efforts his top priority. McKinney formerly served as Indiana's Agricultural Secretary and brings extensive experience when it comes to the private sector. In less than three weeks, a rule to protect family farmers and ranchers from the worst abuse of concentrated 
markets will go into effect barring any setback from the USDA. That comes from the Farmers Union and the United States Cattlemen's Association. They say on the heels of a listening session on regulations hosted by Sonny Purdue, National Farmers Union, and the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, they're calling on the secretary to allow the one of the farmer fair practice rules, an interim rule on competitive injury, to be finalized. The two national organizations released a statement today. That's a look to Rag News. More at RuralRadio.com. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. The EPA was recently invited out to some western Kansas farms. I'm Shaylee Peters on the Rural Radio Network, and here to visit with me today about that is Phil Stallman. He's a K-State weed scientist and professor emeritus. And, Phil, that's not as scary as it sounds. You recently had this tour. Talk to us about some of the things that happened while you were out touring some of the farms. Yes, it was the goal of the meeting and and the tour itself was really to get EPA officials out into the countryside so they could, you know, talk face-to-face with growers, uh, become a little bit familiar with some of the issues that, that growers deal with in semi-arid in, environments and just expose them to uh, the, the scale of agriculture in the, in the Western Great Plains. So tell us more about what exactly some of the things the EPA was looking at while they were out there and kind of the point of having them out to look at these different farms and fields. Well, a number of different things. Uh, of course, herbicide-resistant weeds were uh, one issue. Another issue was about uh, herbicide labeling and some of the restrictions on herbicide labels. In, in a couple of cases, growers were able to point out some label restrictions that really made no sense to them and and in some cases EPA officials were really unaware of the impact of those um, those restrictions and so there was very good give and take on on both sides Uh, in some cases the growers simply came away realizing that EPA is not as is not as evil as as they perceived going in and uh, that sometimes they are not the responsible institution for some of the regulations and in uh, the flip side is that EPA officials really appreciated hearing directly from the growers on on the impacts of regulations and one thing to note is a lot of the areas that you toured and looked at offers pretty unique growing conditions. I know you mentioned that this year was a little bit out of the normal, but typically pretty dry growing conditions. They do. And um, the lack of moisture is something that most of those officials really had not encountered uh, previously. They tend to think of agriculture and in, in um you know, more Midwestern agriculture. Um, and so to hear growers talk about uh, the need to conserve moisture and not to do anything at all to take away herbicides that help them conserve moisture. I think that was a point that really resonated with EPA. They got that message at multiple stops. Okay, Phil, anything additionally you'd like to add? And, you know, have you gotten any feedback from either the farmers or the EPA since this has taken place? Yes, we actually heard uh, some feedback from uh, one grower group that says, man, we wish we could do this more frequently. Uh, This was was really valuable. You know, if we can talk face to face, I think we could accomplish quite a lot. And and, uh, the, the growers were really impressed with the amount of notes that, EPA officials were taking 
really felt that they were serious about it. And in the uh, on the flip side of that, the EPA officials uh, expressed, you know, across the board, were very appreciative of the opportunity to get out and to interact with growers and see agriculture for in western Kansas and the western Great Plains uh, firsthand. All right. Thanks so much. It's Phil Stallman, K-State weed scientist and professor emeritus. For more on this, you can visit ruralradio.com. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Shaley Peters. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network and time to check sports with Jason Jorgenden. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, after picking up wins over Big Ten heavyweights Penn State, Minnesota, and Wisconsin in recent weeks, fourth-ranked Nebraska looks to avoid looking past 14th-ranked Michigan State tonight at the Devaney Center. Now, Nebraska's 11-3 overall, 4-0 in conference play. Tonight's match starts at 7 central time in Lincoln. Senior middle Tara Ziegelbein and junior setter Lindsey Smith both had career-high kill totals to help ninth-ranked UNK down 10th-ranked Regis last night in four sets. With that victory, UNK improved to 16-2 and on the year and keeps two long winning streaks alive. This marked the 43rd consecutive home win dating back to August of 2015 and the 31st straight victory over the Rangers dating back to September of 1999. UNK will host Northwest Missouri and Missouri Western this weekend. Well, one Husker who certainly stood out last Friday for NU was defensive end Ben Stilley of Ashland. The freshman had a huge night in Nebraska's victory over Illinois. And defensive coordinator Bob Iaco says look for him to continue to only get better. Ben is, is tough and smart and big and strong. So hard to, um, you know, when you're, when you're playing in that overhang position or in the alley in force, uh, he, he can be a hard guy to move around. And if, he, and if he's got the right alignment and he's in the right stance and he's got the right fit and he doesn't lose his eyes because he's football intelligent and disciplined, um, it, he can be a force there in that, in that alley and force area. Still, he was named the Big Ten Freshman of the Week. Nebraska will host Wisconsin on Saturday night. After a wild card win last night over Minnesota to start the postseason, Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees will be in Cleveland to prepare for their best-of-five divisional series against the defending AL champion Indians. Now, in a surprise move, Cleveland plans to pitch Trevor Bauer in the opener tomorrow rather than their ace, Corey Kluber. They will save him for Game 2. And Nolan Arenado and the Rockies face the Diamondbacks and their ace, Zach Greinke, in tonight's NL wildcard game. It's a matchup of teams that know each other very well. The divisional rivals share a spring training facility and played each other 19 times this year. The winner of game number 20 heads for L.A. to play the NL West champion Dodgers in the best-of-five divisional series, which starts on Friday. And the 101st NHL season opens up tonight, and the biggest question is whether Pittsburgh can win a third straight title. Penguins host the St. Louis Blues, Toronto's at Winnipeg, Calgary visits Edmonton, and Philadelphia will be visiting San Jose. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. There is a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms between noon and 2 o'clock today. And then a slight chance of showers after 2. High near 60. For tonight, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Then showers likely and a possible thunderstorm after 4 a.m. Cloudy with a low of around 54. More chance of rain again on Thursday. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Scott Foster. We've been hearing about range and brush fires out west all year long. Now the threat has come to the Corn Belt. 
However, farmers can work to avoid combine and field fires this harvest season. Dry conditions from the Dakotas to Illinois should keep farmers wary of accidentally starting a fire. It's not something they're used to thinking about each harvest, but one to take special note of this season, says Dwayne Friend from the University of Illinois. And it's, it's one of those things that where you may have a, a combine out in the field, you may have a truck out in the field, a pickup truck or something like that, and field fires uh, don't always just start uh, immediately. Uh, sometimes you can have them start from plant materials that have been smoldering for 15 or 30 minutes. So, for example, if somebody's driving a vehicle with a hot exhaust pipe through a field that uh, and maybe some of it comes in contact with some, some dry residue, it can sit there and smolder for a little bit, gust of wind comes along, and then you end up with a field fire. The best thing to do if a field fire starts is to call 911 and get out of the way. If there are fire extinguishers on hand and the decision is to try and fight the fire, try to fight it from the black areas of the field or those places that have already been burned. Matt Haybrock is the Assistant Director of Agriculture for the state of Nebraska. He says that Thurston County becoming, he talks about Thurston County becoming the 43rd ag-friendly county in Nebraska. Yeah, it's really exciting because we've got 43 counties. You know, that's nearly half of the counties in Nebraska that have said, you know, they're open to business and they recognize the opportunities that livestock creates for that local economy. So we've got a few more applications that we're reviewing, and I'm guessing here in the next couple weeks and months we'll have more announcements coming. So we're really excited with all the enthusiasm and support for the program. Police say a person crossing a midtown Omaha street in a crosswalk has died after being hit by a pickup truck. Omaha police say the crash happened late Tuesday night when 50-year-old Ayat Sabah was struck by a pickup while walking across Cumming Street at at the 40th Street intersection. Police say Sabah was taken by medics to an Omaha hospital and later died. Police say the 35-year-old driver from Bennington was not believed to have been speeding when he hit Sabah. The crash remains under investigation. Sabah was the second pedestrian to be hit and killed in as many days in central Omaha. On Monday, 34-year-old Anton Fan was killed by a hit-and-run driver. No arrests in that case have been announced. Trusted charities are accepting donations for hurricane disaster relief. Do your part using our links at krvn.com. In the News Center, I'm Scott Foster. Brandon Bennett's with the Rural Radio Network. I'm talking with Assistant Professor of History from the University of Nebraska, Kearney, Dr. David Vale. And Dr. Vale, talk a little bit about your background and tell us what brought you to UNK. I was born in Oregon and uh, grew up in the southern part of the state. And usually people who love agricultural history sort of grew up on farms. has been typically the case, at least the scholars I've spoken with. But uh, I'm sort of the exception. I did not grow up on a farm but as I learned about landscapes, I did a lot of outdoor activities with my grandfather in Oregon and the rural parts of that state. And so as I sort of grew up with that experience, I grew more and more interested in agricultural history. And so I was sort of off to the races with that. So I got my undergraduate degree at Southern Oregon University. It's a smaller, actually very similar to University of Nebraska Kearney. And then I went to Utah State for my master's degree in history and then Kansas State for my PhD in history. And every stage, I grew more interested in agricultural history. And so then last year, I got my dream job here at UNK where I'm teaching agriculture cultural history, among other specialties, and um, so excited to be here. David, drill down for us a little bit. 
How did you become interested in the history of agriculture, and what are some of those great things that you've discovered through your research? So I would say first, one of the things that drew me to UNK, but also to the agricultural history itself, is the role that local people play in that history, but also to the extent of environment and community history. In so many ways, it's easy, I think, to talk about the politics of an era or an economy of an era, but really what we learn about not just a region or a community, but I would say even a larger history, our national history, everything is sort of tied, in my opinion at least, to the role that agriculture has played in our country, but especially in a region like the Great Plains and in a state like Nebraska. And so I like to focus on the history of people and places as a way of understanding these larger themes that all of us need to know about, you know, themes like the role technology plays in agricultural history or the role soils and um, landscapes play. And also what role do communities have in that larger history? So those are some of the areas that I've always been drawn to and I think play a significant role in how we understand the communities in which we live But I would also say, you know, to have a better sense of a civic life, you know, one of the things that I try to instill in students at UNK is the power of history and the importance of understanding the past for helping address current issues, current problems. And again, for me, agriculture plays a fundamental role in all of that. Brandon Bennett's with the Rural Radio Network, talking with Dr. David Vale. He's a professor of agriculture history at the University of Nebraska, Kearney. He's also going to be joining us for a monthly segment beginning next month right here on the Rural Radio Network. Dr. Vale, you've got a new book coming out. Tell us about this book and how it relates to agricultural history. I have written a book that will be coming out in January of 2018, and the title is Chemical Lands. Pesticides, Aerial Spraying, and Health in North America's Grasslands Since 1945. And it's being published through the University of Alabama Press. They have this new series that talks about the histories of technology and science and environment and agriculture and medicine. And really what the press is doing and what my work tries to do is look at the histories of all of these things together. So for me, my book talks about the history of pesticides, aerial spraying, and health in not just the region, but it looks, what I say, it, it kind of considers all of this history from the field view. And the reason I've taken this approach in my work is because I think most of us are pretty familiar with the partisan political debates that go on and on about herbicides and insecticides and larger discussions about conservation versus agricultural production. But I think so much has been overlooked in terms of the scholarship about who the practitioners were from 1945 on how they considered these different risks and challenges when they started using herbicides and insecticides. That was sort of what got me inspired to write this book. So what I try to do is talk about how all of that looked in terms of the industry, aerial spraying in particular, but in a larger sense, you know, what are farmers and agricultural scientists and ag spray pilots How are they working together? What are some of the controversies before this science of toxicology existed, before the politics of DDT and insecticides and herbicides sort of emerged in the 1970s? And since that has been largely overlooked, especially with the aerial spraying industry, I wanted to kind of get into that and expand on the sprayer's point of view, at least give them due credit and shaping that history because what went on here in the grasslands also looked very much different in certain respects than what went on in the south, what went on in the southwest and in the northwest. And so 
if you just focus on the politics, not only are those things partisan, but then all of a sudden you miss these really important regional stories about what practitioners tried to do and how they shaped significantly not just the ways in which aerial spraying and herbicides and insecticides were used and applied, but also sort of the cultural views and debates around that. But also what I'm hoping to do in the future here is to start doing oral histories with aerial spray pilots because there's such a legacy of aerial sprayers and their families. That history really needs to be recorded and remembered. Dr. Vale, the last word is yours. What else about your background or your research would you like us to know? I'm excited just to build relationships with different communities in Nebraska, and I would say that for me, my history is very active, um, and what we're doing at UNK is really exciting because we're definitely wanting to get out in the communities and connect what we're teaching and what we're researching to what matters to different communities in Nebraska. That was Dr. David Vale at the University of Nebraska, Kearney. He's an assistant professor in the history department specializing in agricultural history, and you'll be able to hear him every month from here on out right here on the Rural Radio Network. This is Brandon Bennett. Back on the Rural Radio Network, let's get a review of the livestock futures trade from Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Yeah, very uh, interesting day as we uh, finish the day. Uh, cattle finishing uh, mixed to mostly uh, higher, uh, but barely higher. And uh, the feeders uh, lower. And the hogs mixed uh, with only the uh, October contract higher, the rest lower. So very uh, choppy trade today, very uh, back-and-forth cattle. Uh, did hear some uh, cattle uh, trading at 108. But uh, the disappointment uh, right there, because I think they were looking for 110, didn't get it. And uh, uh, so down we came, uh, profit-taking, uh, and uh, the feeders, same thing. Boy, the feeders really came under a lot of pressure uh, during the latter part of the day and uh, finishing uh, sharply lower cutouts in the beef, uh, lower on the choice. Uh, over in the hogs, the uh, cutouts a little bit higher. Cash seems to be in good shape. It was higher today, and uh, that uh, brought on some early buying, but uh, ran out of gas and then and ended up with profit-taking. I think it was just too much. Thanks, Joe. If you have more questions of Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities, call 800-328-0134. Total cattle slaughter for the first three days this week is estimated at 342000 12,000 less than last week, 4,000 more than a year ago. Hog slaughter estimated 1,367,000. That's 12,000 less than last week, and it's 47,000 more than one year ago. Dewey Nelson reporting on the Rural Radio Network. Now's a good time to be checking for soybean cyst nematode. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Travis Gustafson is an agronomist with Syngenta, and he stresses now versus later in doing that testing. They should be really thinking about sampling for cyst nematodes at this time. Um, right after harvest, it's the best time to get out there and do some sampling for nematodes. Um, you're going to have the most accurate count um, that you know would be during your in-season, in-crop populations. You can sample pretty much any time of year, but I would recommend not sampling the soil when the ground is frozen because it's kind of difficult. 
So um, you can do it in the spring or the fall, but the fall is going to be the best time to do it for accuracy of your counts. Are you seeing um, certain times of the year, obviously, that we see an influx in these nematodes, but you talk about the fall number count-wise. What is something they need to be thinking about when they get that report back so they better understand what that sample is all about? Um, If they have nematodes in their field, it doesn't really matter what the number is. They, you know, if they have a number of one or greater, um, they need to take action on um, doing some sort of management for soybean cyst nematode. And and I like to look at it as uh, using multiple modes of action. We talk about modes of action in herbicides, but the same thing applies to nematodes. Um, The first mode of action that you should use in controlling this nematode would be crop rotation so you know just simply rotating out to corn the next year or or some other crop um second mode of action would be um, using a resistant soybeans variety so you know as you're sampling this year um, make sure that you're talking to your seed salesman and selecting a variety that has a um, soy cyst nematode resistant gene package in it and then the third mode of action is to use a seed treatment. Um, so Syngenta has a, a product called Chloriva that is a biological nematicide that works all season long and can control nematodes in the soil um, for all the, the whole season because nematodes will uh, be a pest all season long, not just in the spring or the late season. They're, nematodes are a pest all season. So you need all season protection. Now my understanding is once they're in the field, they're in the field. There's no coming back a couple years later with a, with soybeans again and not having an issue. Is that still correct? Yeah, that is absolutely correct. The uh, cyst nematode can um, reside in the soil for years. I, I want to say decades, but I'll at least say years. And um, even after one year of corn, you're only going to have a reduction in the population of, of up to 50%. So, um, and then if you do two years of corn, the reduction is even less. So you're going to have a nematode in the soil no matter how many years of corn you plant. So it's something to be managed. It's not something you can eradicate out of the soil uh, other than maybe removing the soil, but nobody wants to do that. That's too much work. Yeah, that's right. Is there areas of the country that seem to be harder hit? Uh, usually in the areas of the country... As we move east out of Nebraska, they talk more about nematodes in those areas. But quite honestly, if you have nematodes in the soil, they're equally as bad of a problem. It doesn't matter where you go. Um, we're kind of on the western edge of cyst nematode, the, the area where they um, are present. And, and we're getting to the point where nematodes are present anywhere we grow soybeans. Comments with Travis Gustafson. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. We're with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. What did you think about the soybeans, buying the soybeans, selling the wheat today? Did that occur? Yes. Uh, I think all in all, after the, the action we had early in the morning, to see it come back was, I guess, good good feeling here. Still feels like we're going to run down and test those lows that we were at, I, you know, three to four cents below here, but this trade is so slow, moving three to four cents, it 
almost marks a headline uh, alert uh, in, in the market of corn. Moving over to soybeans, the, the rally we saw there, I think, is based off of Brazil. We saw another model run come out, and uh, we're looking at a lasting pattern of dry uh, in Brazil through the 20th of October. And uh, it really, I, I think we're getting to the point now where uh, you have a lot of the, the yield and the, the the river news on the bear side is, is kind of overtaking a lot of the bullishness that's coming out of that South American. I wouldn't be shocked to see China come in with some mass, massive purchases next week. Overall, in that wheat market, uh, we still remain under pressure, but we've got to be getting close to the point where some sales could be evident. I, I hope so. I mean, I'd like to think wheat has some legs. I, I think really, you know, I've been saying wheat needs the lead. I think wheat needs to stay about a dollar over corn, and hopefully we can see a rally in corn. If, if corn can rally, um, then we can all of a sudden maybe find ourselves on the, uh, on, on the good side of, of wheat. I still am a little bit, the rains they've gotten south of you guys, everything looks pretty good in Kansas right now for drilling, and, you know, the folks down in Texas who are planning are happy. Um, I think the acreage story is something that will be a, a bullish factor as we go into the new year, but, you know, that took a while to get into the trade uh, a year ago. So I look for more of the same, probably, uh, you know, maybe another pop-up towards 450, but I have a hard time believing we're going to get above those levels until we start to, to get some weather problems here in the U.S. And speaking of weather problems, is Brazil weather and our Australia weather still a factor? Australia is still a factor. They're going to they're get a little more rain now, but it's still, I think, we're pretty much, you know, sub-20 million metric ton crop down there, and that was a 35 million metric ton crop a year ago. So you're taking a big haircut there. But unfortunately, I think for producers in your area, it's it, the folks out in the Pacific Northwest are going to get that business. And I think that's one reason why we've seen uh, the Chicago kind of overcome the Kansas City here is it's five cents more expensive. Brazil is dry. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have weather patterns out measured through the 20th of October, Still lasting heats of dryness, uh, parts of Mato Grosso and then Goyas, where there are a lot of bean makers this year. And uh, we're going to get up in the 90s and the 100s, and we're going to need moisture here. So, like I said, I think the short-term picture, everybody's looking at the bearishness of the U.S., but I think there's some value here on the beans. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Go to danielsagmarketing.com. Dewey Nelson reporting.